Okay, so I just wanted to make a, I guess there are some evolutionary biologists in the audience, but um, we're as a usual a minority. Um, I wanted to make a couple points while I got started. My roommate's not here, so, but this was stimulated by some comments he was making at the beginning of his talk, Owen, yesterday. Um, some of you might have been startled a bit by me questioning this word Darwinism, but I really dislike this term a lot because it, it, it really has no meaning. And in fact, it, it's misleading in terms of what's happened in evolutionary biology since Darwin was around. Right? We, would, we wouldn't call uh, biophysics fickism or cell biology hookerism and so on. A lot's happened in the past uh, century or so in evolutionary biology. And uh, one of those things is that uh, we no longer believe that natural selection explains all of biodiversity, certainly at the molecular level and the cellular level. And I find that nice because if all it was was natural selection, you know, the field's all over. It's just filling in blanks and coming up with stories. So we still have a lot of work to do to understand how evolution occurs at the uh, molecular level and, and at the cell level, right? We have no real field of evolutionary cell biology for some reason. We have what we think is a field of molecular evolution, and some people talk about evo-devo, but we just jumped right over the cell for some reason. So wait a minute, I have a question. Sure. You guys interrupt and stuff. You no, you do the interrupting. <laughs> but we do yeah, interrupt. I am interrupt, but there have been a lot of interruptions. No, that's... And I think that it's not going to let you just get away. It's all over if it's all about natural selection. That's so you think there's no other mechanism of evolution than natural selection? Well, I don't think there's no other mechanism, but I think there's still an awful lot we have to learn about natural selection, how it works, what it's, you know, what, what's happened. I, 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 and I don't necessarily think that the most exciting stuff is going to be in other areas. So, uh, so what do you think there's left to learn about natural selection? I just think there's all kinds of details going on and all kinds of interesting stuff and to just say, oh, it's just... Oh, so we don't have a, a disagreement. I don't think we have a disagreement. I agree there's lots of details to fill in. Well, I... I think that's what I just said, actually. I... I um, all right. Are you going to comment on the reception that Mutu Kumura received in the 50s and 60s when he tried to deviate from Darwinism? Um... I think there's so much to say. I think, um, I mean, he's not around to defend himself any longer, but I think he was sort of painted into a corner. It's certainly not true that um, Kamura didn't believe in natural selection, and, and nobody really any longer views there as being pure neutralism and pure selectionism. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, and I'll return to that, though, in a second, and, and we'll see why the, there's a blurry distinction between the two. Uh, in any event, um, one, one important point to sort of start off with is that uh, how evolution, uh, so you might argue that natural selection is the most powerful force in the universe, but it's not all powerful. And the way natural selection operates and uh, can't operate in certain contexts depends on the population genetic environment, which I just illustrated here is this triad of, of uh, different factors that influence populations that are extrinsic to the, the processes of, of selection. Uh, one of these, of course, is mutation, which creates variation upon which natural selection operates. I'll talk a lot about that. And then uh, recombination reassorts variation within the chromosomes. And random genetic drift is sort of a lens on the evolutionary process. It's noise in the evolutionary process. It dictates how efficient selection can be. 
So selection's always operating, but if the power of drift is random fluctuations of allele frequencies is greater than the deterministic force of selection, selection's overwhelmed. So this is the distinction. This is where uh, neutralism is. Things operate on a completely different time scale, right? The combination happens almost instantaneously. Mutation happens at the next level, and drift takes forever. Well, the, they're all operating simultaneously, but uh, the time scale of drift is inversely proportional to the population size. If that's one way of thinking about it. But it's always smaller than the combination, much smaller than the combination time. Uh, no, it's not. Turns out, I'll, I'll show you some recombination results in a second. In fact, the power of recombination at the base level is weaker than the power of drift generally. So somebody before said that in live, experiment, in live experiments, the selection can be very strong. So does that tip the balance? Well, if you increase the power of selection on anything, eventually, once it's the, the selection coefficient's higher, so just to back up for a second, very crudely, the power of drift we view is for a haploid organism is the inverse of what we call the genetic effect of population size. That's not the same as the head count. It's usually much smaller than the total number of individuals for a lot of reasons, including the fact that some individuals don't produce, reproduce. Okay, so as soon as selection uh, operating at maybe in the molecular level you're thinking, it doesn't matter, as soon as the selection coefficient and whatever you're talking about exceeds 1 over 2n, especially substantially, then selection's running the show. If it's less than that, then drift is running the show. And there's this crossroads where they're both about equal to each other. And there's many, many cases in uh, molecular evolution and cellular evolution where you're somewhere in that gray area. Another question, maybe you'll get to it. Uh, spatial migration, what does that fit in? I, I view that as, yeah, we could perhaps make that as a, a portion of this part of the pie here, but um, population structure influences uh, the power of random genetic drift, right? It increases the level of drift within populations and then causes, in some cases, it can cause selection to be more efficient, depends on the degree of gene action and so on, but by sequestering alleles in different populations, sometimes they can come to uh, rise to the eyes of natural selection a little bit more easily. So let me, uh, before I get into mutation, and eventually this is leading to issues associated with somatic mutation, that's supposed to be the connection uh, with cooperativity here. Uh, let me just point out what we do know uh, about two of these uh, uh, three aspects of the population genetic environment. So if there's one law in ecology, it's illustrated here, I think it's fair to say we don't know why this pattern uh, exists, but it, it certainly does. This is a log-log plot of the number of individuals per unit area as a function of the size of the individual. So uh, there's 20 log differences on the y-axis there, um, and the slope is minus one. So this is telling us that if you double the size of an organism, you, uh, you uh, increase the uh, population size by you, Sorry, if you double the size of your organism, reduce the population size by 50%. And you can see these results roughly scale across all of life, and prokaryotes would be up here. Now, this doesn't mean that the power of, of drift is, is 20 orders of magnitude different. Down here, uh, the, the classic form of random genetic drift that those of you have thought about 
uh, in terms of numbers of individuals is really governing things. But up here, there's another uh, uh, aspect of life that dictates the, the role of chance, and that's the fact that our genes are on the same chromosomes. So if genes are on the same chromosomes, um, even if the population is enormous, selection can't be perfectly efficient at transmitting uh, this particular beneficial mutation here because its net fitness depends on the genetic background it resides in. And we call this background selection uh, is, is one way of describing it. It reduces the efficiency of selection. So probably the maximum effective population size of anything on the planet is somewhere on the order of n equals 10 to the 10th individuals or so. And yeah, that's what that's what this. Now keep in mind that there's, you know, there's 20 orders of magnitude here. So just the range of variation around the line is two orders of magnitude above or below. But this is sort of the big pattern. Is it log 10 scale or log e scale? It's log 10, I think. I mean, it, it's not going to change the overall pattern. Um, so you can obviously easily pick out that point and that point and say it goes against the grain, but that's the big picture. I'm sorry, I didn't really understand the, the argument. You're saying that this density is a proxy for uh, effective origin size? Yeah, so there's, there's two broad classes of, of factors that influence the effective population size. One's the numbers of individuals. And the other is the, the sheer fact that genes reside on chromosomes. Because that, that's a source of noise, background uh, variation. You can, you can be a beneficial mutation and get trapped in a background where you're tightly linked to a deleterious mutation. And unless recombination separates you, you go down the tubes instead of get promoted. And uh, once you get uh, up to this so I can't give you an exact point, but once you get to, to very, very large numbers, it's the, the chromosome effects that are taking over, overwhelming the numbers. And we know this from data that I'll show you uh, in, in, in a, a little bit. Okay, so moving on to the second point, uh, recombination. How does, re, does recombination, and this is the recombination rate per base on a chromosome, does it behave in any general way across the tree of life. And uh, for eukaryotes, the answer is a definite yes. And uh, this is a plot of uh, the recombination rate per physical distance, so it's per kilobase here, as a function of the size of the genome for a variety of different organisms. It doesn't matter what they are. It does change where you are on this line, but the overall line uh, holds up very well. The slope, again, is minus one. So if you double the size of a genome, you reduce the amount of recombination per physical distance by 50%. Is this saying anything more than that there is one recombination per chromosome? Thank you. That, that abbreviates what I need to go into. That's exactly what's driving this, in my opinion. That, and that, that's an interesting phenomenon, right? But this is genetics 101. We could have, so these data come from high-density genetic maps, which we now, this is outdated by a couple of years, but we have high-density genetic maps for several hundred organisms now. Um, so why would you get this, this pattern? Well, the reason you get it, as organisms uh, grow larger and larger genomes, so us land plants, and I guess there's not many of us land plants in the room, but uh, 
vertebrates and land plants are way down here with big bloated genomes and microbial eukaryotes are way over there. That's yeast, that's Saccharomyces cerevisiae, a rather bizarre bug that everybody works on. Very, very high recombination rate, the highest ever recorded. Uh, and so what happens is organisms evolve larger and larger genomes. It's not by adding more and more chromosomes to the genome in general, just by on average increasing chromosome size. So there's no correlation between chromosome number and genome size. And we don't know why this is true, but uh, a constraint on the genetics of eukaryotic organisms is there is uh, typically no more than one crossover per chromosome arm per generation. So if you double the size of a genome, you don't change the number of chromosomes, you reduce the amount of recombination per physical distance on, on the chromosome by 50%. Simple as that. Um, so you're exactly right. And the variation around, there's about an order of magnitude variation around these data points, and that's the other dimension here. Uh, that's the cro chromosome numbers that are, are coming to influence here. So things with large numbers of chromosomes are up here because often, if you're just looking at two random sites, the larger the number of chromosomes, the higher the probability they are on different chromosomes, nothing more than that. So uh, if you give me the genome size of an organism, the number of chromosomes, we can predict to uh, a level of error variation of about 1% of what the recombination rate on average per physical distance would be. Now there are evolutionary biologists who spend large fractions of their career trying to explain variation in the recombination rate, but to me this is telling, at least to me in the broad sense of eukaryotic evolution, that selection must be doing everything possible to keep the recombination rate as low as possible. You just can't, apparently you can't get through meiosis with at least one crossover per, per chromosome arm, generally. There are some exceptions. Uh, Male Drosophila, for example. I think there can be two or three. In fact, in some organisms there are. You can go higher than one. You can definitely go higher. But apparently you can't go much lower in general and make it. So uh, let's move on to uh, mutation rate. This is primarily what I want to focus on today and sort of a an outline of where we're headed is uh, illustrated here. So uh, one thing I'll be showing you is that there's dramatic variation in the mutation. So the mutation rate is just as the recombination rate and the power of drift aren't constant parameters across the tree of life, neither is the mutation rate. And the point I'm making is all these things change by orders of magnitude. So this means that the rules uh, of how evolution can and can't occur really varies dramatically among lineages. Uh, as, just to back up as an example, if selection is primarily operating on genes with additive effects, that the effect of the selective coefficient on this allele doesn't depend on its background, this is, it's good to be way up here because selection's freeing you up from any, any other background that you might be associated with statistically. Uh, but if selection's primarily operating on genes for their epistatic effects, and there's increasing evidence that that's often the case, that means two genes, a particular mutation here and a particular mutation there, need to be together to give you the adaptation. This is where you want to be, because once they've arisen together, uh, you're less likely to be brought apart by recombination. So the recombination rate really does influence the mechanisms of, of, uh, by which natural selection can proceed. 
Okay, so the, we'll see that the mutation rate varies across phylogenetic groups. There's about a threefold range of variation in cellular or organisms. Three order of magnitude, sorry, range of variation. Uh, we'll see that when we get back to somatic mutations, we'll see there's dramatic differences in the mutation rate among tissues in the same multicellular organism. And even in the same cells, we sometimes use d different DNA polymerases to replicate DNA, and there's substantial variation among the polymerases as well in their replication fidelity. Uh, it, Can I ask about uh, variation of mutation rate within genomes? Presumably there's just hot spots. Is that just like a two or three-fold effect? Um, we've got some pretty good data now on microbes. Um, now it's hard to, it, you'll see when we get into these experiments, it's, it's really hard directly to measure a hot spot because the kind of experiments we do, which are the most detailed ever done, um, a hot spot you know, could be really hot and you would still only find one mutation at that site. Right, because of the numbers, you know, if we're only collecting 300 or so mutations in experiments, it's very hard to say on that scale. But in bacteria, for example, we now know that there's a broad spatial pattern. So bacterial genomes are usually circular, and there's one origin of replication at the top. And we now know that the mutation rate is pretty low around 12 o'clock and it increases around three o'clock. So you've got one polymerase going this way and one going that way down to the terminus. And mutation rate goes up around nine o'clock and three o'clock, and then it goes down uh, once you get to around six o'clock. And we don't know the mechanism yet, but this has shown up now in Bacillus and E. coli. We, it may be general. We're trying to figure this out by uh, taking the origin of replication in a line and putting it over three o'clock and see if you, you get the same pattern or if it shifts with the time zone, so to speak, or I guess time, that's not the appropriate analogy, but you get the point. But the variation is just threefold or something? Yeah, it's uh, somewhere in that range. It's not like an order of magnitude, <laughs> but it, it's very, it's, it's certainly easily seen if you've got a big enough mutation collection. What about contingency loci and pathogenic bacteria? Yeah, so microsatellites are sort of in a different class. I'm primarily going to be talking about point mutations, but yeah, if you put a, you happen to have a microsatellite or a homopolymeric run in your locus, it, that gets the, the replication machinery quite confused and your mutation rate can go up at that, that particular position. Okay, so there's been a lot of speculation about uh, whether mutation rates have been fine-tuned. As I, I said, there's going to show a thousand-fold range in mutation rates, and you might say, well, everybody's been fine-tuned to have the mutation rate that maximizes the long-term rate of evolution. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. It's not to say there can't be transient times, especially in things like pathogen outbreaks when you lose mismatch repair and you win the lottery for a short period of time. But you don't want to stay there forever. You want to get mismatch repair back eventually. Uh, does, do you think line elements play any role in this? <laughs> well, uh, mobile elements are, so you're talking about, I mean, there are many classes of, of transposable elements. And they're an added dimension to the mutation process. So again, I'm going to be talking primarily about um, point mutations, but, uh, and for many organisms, especially microbes, there are very few mobile elements, in some cases none. But for us, we're packed with mobile elements. 90% of our genome is remnants or 
current mobile, we're, we're basically a walking bag of transposable element DNA. And so that, that jumps, and you already see it, you'll see that humans already have a high mutation rate at the point mutation level. So adding that on uh, increases our, our rate uh, quite substantially. And in terms of fitness mutations, mobile element insertions can be one of the more dangerous things around. Well, the mutations that I'll be talking about, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the machinery. I mean, they're just errors in polymer uh, of replication. Yeah, yeah but, but the one that I selected, the one that the, the one that been selected during the evolution, are they due to ancestor point mutation or or or, or to transposons? Uh, can be either. I mean, occasionally. Uh, I mean, we know from many, many experiments the vast majority of mutations are bad, but we're here because the occasional ones are good. And even a mobile element can occasionally make a beneficial mutation. So natural selection just takes advantage of what happens to arise. Okay. When you say we, you mean the cells that came from your parents, not the microbial ecosystem that is most of your cells. Yeah, I'm talking about germline mutations, right? Uh, but we'll, we'll get back to some issues of somatic mutations that I hope people think about that will connect us with uh, the multicellularity the, uh, question. Project says uh, you've got three million genes, actually. If you include the microbial protein coding genes, yeah, <laughs> not thirty thousand, yeah, twenty-three thousand. And many of those, we need those uh, symbionts with us. Okay, so we'll see that there's no, well, there's no evidence that natural selection, in fact, fine-tunes the, the mutation rate to some intermediate level. In fact, we'll see in a second that it's almost always driving the rate down to the minimum possible level. Uh, and the question is, why isn't efficient enough? And this gets back to the point of the limited power, frequently, of natural selection. Uh, in fact, you can make better polymerase molecules in the lab to do a better job of copying DNA than we have in some organisms. And given that most mutations are deleterious, then you're left with the question, why, why hasn't natural selection been able to push things to perfection to a, a, a greater degree? And it is a degree that varies among organisms. So what I'll be discussing initially is this thing I call the drift barrier uh, hypothesis for the evolution of the mutation rate. But this applies to any kind of adaptation uh, from the molecular level to the cellular level to the broad phenotypic level of an organism. And this gets back to the point here is that once natural selection is refined in adaptation to the point that the next adaptive mutation has a selective advantage less than the power of drift, you've reached the drift barrier. And so what this predicts is that the smaller the effective population size, the more limited uh, natural selection is going to be in promoting uh, the refinement of adaptations. Is that related to the quasi-species idea, or that's a separate I think that's a separate issue. The quasi-species idea is uh, really related to the maximum number, maximum mutation rate you can tolerate. And that's actually related to this issue that the vast majority of mutations are deleterious. And so once your mutation rate, uh, we'll get back to that. Why don't you put a place mark in that because I'll, that's related to uh, 
the relationship between genome size and mutation rate evolution. So I'll actually get back to that in a, a little bit. Okay, so let's to put everybody on the same page. Let's try and understand how selection does operate on the mutation rate. Um, and uh, some of this theory goes uh, back to Kimura, and we've. Uh, and so this is an example of selection in, in Kimura's early work, and we've done some additional tweaking on the theory, but I think it can all be understood in a, a fairly cartoon fashion. So imagine you have an asexual population. So the point I'm going to be making here is selection on the mutation rate is in a downward direction, but it's generally a very, very weak force even in asexuals, and we'll see it's even weaker in sexual species. So imagine you have an asexual population. This is an idealized situation. There's really no such thing as an absolutely asexual population, even in, in bacteria, but that's another story. But, but you, get, you can approximate it, and it makes, makes the point here. Now we have a, a sub-lineage that arises in this population that's a mutator. It's got some, maybe even weak, elevation in the mutation rate, but as a consequence, um, of, of that and the fact that this is a clonal sublineage, individuals that descend, so that's the mutator allele, it could be any one of hundreds of loci that influence the mutation rate. As a consequence, this lineage will start to build up an excess number of deleterious mutations relative to the average number in the population. Okay, so delta U is the increased uh, mutation rate in this sublineage. And the way natural selection works is that it will remove individual, S is the selective disadvantage of an average mutation. And so any individual with one more mutation, that will be the rate at which it's removed from the population. This is like an input-output uh, diagram. You could use this for a nutrient budget in a lake if you, you wanted. And you'll eventually reach some equilibrium level. This, this clonal lineage will expand and diversify. And you will event, it will eventually reach some equilibrium level of excess deleterious mutations compared to the other individuals in the population. And it turns out that's nothing more than the ratio of the input to the output, delta U over S. Okay? And that should be intuitive, that there's more coming in. Uh, but S is the power which you're eliminating mutations. So that's the excess number of mutations. But we want to know how this clonal lineage is feeling it. And so this is one of those nice things in population genetics where things are initially messy and then everything cancels out. So we have to multiply the number by the effect and the S cancels out. And so what this tells us is that the selective uh, disadvantage of a mutator allele is simply equal to the increased uh, genomic deleterious mutation rates completely independent of the effects of the mutations. Okay, and that's simply because uh, as the effect goes lower, the number goes higher and they balance, balance out completely. So if there was one mutation, say, in a DNA polymerase or a mismatch repair locus, a damage repair locus, you can imagine that this delta U and this mutator can be a very, very low number, easily down in the order of 10 to the minus 6 or so. So this is telling us that selection is a weak force. It's pushing the mutation rate down, but it's not incredibly strong with respect to point mutations in the repair machinery. Now, it gets even worse if you're a sexual organism because in a sexual organism, you don't ever get to build up to this number because now you're a mutator allele. And so all selection on the mutation rate, it's an indirect effect. It's due to mutations that you're creating in other loci that influence fitness. Now, if you're a sexual organism, most of those mutations are going to rise on different chromosomes 
and in an average of two generations, they're going to segregate away from you as the mutator. So for a, uh, uh, a sexual population, instead of the number being uh, delta U over S, it's really delta U over one half, one half being the rate of segregation away from the mutator. So this becomes a, a two delta U, and now the S doesn't cancel out. Now we know from plenty of empirical work that S is on the order of uh, uh, 10 to the minus uh, 3, 10 to the minus 2. So the, the good news, the bad news is that most mutations are deleterious. Uh, the good news is that mo most of the individual, they're not lethal on average, most of the effects are, are mildly deleterious. But this means that selection on the mutation rate in the sexual population is on the order of 100 to 1,000 times weaker than it is in a, an asexual population. So now let's move on to the drift barrier hypothesis. And again, I, I, I want to uh, make the point that this doesn't just apply to the mutation rate. It applies to any character in any population. So suppose you have an allelic series, and we're moving to the right to higher and higher fitness alleles. And then can, you, can I ask you a question? Does, this, does that explain why even yeast has to go through, uh, or likes to go through a, a diploid phase? Trying to, because otherwise it would just live as a haploid on its life, right? But then it would accumulate. Yeah, well, I, I guess I won't go far, far out on a branch and say that's to, remember that by going sexual, you actually uh, reduce the amount of selection on the mutation rate, right? But most of the deleterious, so presumably you just. You'll shed, shed the mutations, but on the other hand, in terms of selection and newly arising mutations that influence the mutation rate itself, you'll be weakening selection against them. Michael, what, what do you see as driving in both directions? So selection is weak here. Um, driving the mutation rate down is the cost of producing deleterious mutations. Is that what you're saying? And, but driving it up, cost of fidelity? Or, and what would yeah, so you could flip that theory right over. I gave you the, the selective disadvantage of a mutator. You can flip it over completely, and, and you can use the same argument for the selective advantage of an anti-mutator. Okay, just change the sign. So that tells us, too, that it's hard to promote an anti-mutator, okay? unless its effect is enormous. What about the persistence for thousands, tens of thousands of generations of mutators in the Vinsky? Well, those are tiny populations, for one thing. Um, and, uh, I mean, the only way back, I mean, I believe that most of his mutators are mismatch repair losses. And so the only way back is, uh, I don't remember if his are deletions. If they're deletions, there's no way back. Uh, if it's a point mutation, though, you have to wait for an appropriate back mutation in the small number of individuals uh, to re restore it. It's as simple as that. You might have thought that after all of this time that the accumulation of deleterious mutations hundredfold mutators, I think the first ones came up. Well, let's get back to this in a second because I'll talk about the E. coli. The E. coli mutation rate itself is pretty low, although it would be a hundred times higher in the mismatch repair knockouts, roughly. Um, in fact, I guess I'll show you some data on that E. coli mismatch repair <coughs> effect. Can you say what you mean by allelic series? Yeah, so you could just view this as being some progressive series of alleles going across. The, the, lo, the low fitness allele would be over here, and a higher one would be over here. I'm, I'm 
sparing you making this could be a network or something but let's just to, to try and for explanatory reasons let's try and keep it linear and most mutations are in the downward direction making bad alleles and a few will move you in the upward direction and so you can then imagine now a population um, with a certain effective population size and it will evolve uh, some equilibrium distribution of these different alleles okay over time and you may be fixed for one or the other at any point in time but on average there'll be uh, some sort of distribution uh, of, of, of these classes. Now, as we move to the right, we're moving to what we would call molecular perfection. So you can't, once you've got the absolute perfect enzyme, um, there's little room for further improvement. So the selection, selective advantages gradually have to decline as you go to the right, okay? And so what that, and the way I, you could produce any number of models, but I've just got it so that the selective disadvantages are advantages are uh, it's an exponential model let's just say so um, that's how much room you've got for improvement to start but as you get closer and closer you can think of the selective advantage of the distance difference between that distance and the distance for the previous allele that's all all I'm saying and so when you stretch this out and plot the selective these are the selective advantages of the alleles as you move further and further to the right they necessarily decline because you're approaching molecular perfection and so what will happen if, for example, you have a population size of, say, 10 to the fourth, um, selection will just gradually push you over here. But once you get to the point where the next best allele has a selective advantage less than 10 to the minus four, which is the reciprocal, it's a haploid here, so it's the reciprocal of the population, you've reached the drift barrier. You can't go any further. Even though it'd be better to be over here, and you might even get a mutant allele that goes over here, you can't keep it there. And then uh, if we increase the population size by a factor of 100, um, you can push things further, further to the right. So this in general makes a prediction that the level of uh, molecular refinement or any kind of refinement in terms of adaptation will be inversely proportional to the, the population size. And so what you can imagine then is, uh, say you have a population of 10 to the fourth, and imagine you could just follow it over evolutionary time and take a snapshot at different points in time and ask what allele is it where which of these alleles is in there if the population is 10 to the fourth in this series you'd wander back and forth these are all effectively neutral with respect to each other so this is what we call effective neutrality and this came out of well this is related to some of Kimura's ideas that it sounds like some of you are familiar with Kimura's work and so what's happening is below here, these are strongly disadvantageous alleles, and natural selection has no problem keeping them out. These are advantageous, but they're so weakly advantageous that once they arise, natural selection can't hold on to them, and you're vulnerable to moving back here. So you get these sort of steady state distributions, and then as you move to the right, you're moving to larger and larger population sizes, and moving closer and closer to this evolutionary nirvana, this world of molecular perfection, but you never get there even in an infinite population size. And we've actually known why for a long time. Haldane is one of the first people to tell us why. And that's because there's always, back, there's always mutations to deleterious alleles. So even in an infinite population size, there's a load on the population due to segregating deleterious alleles that are always at, at low frequencies. The width of these distributions seems approximately independent of the population. Is 
Yeah, it's more, I won't go into all the details. I've got some analytical results here, and these are uh, computer results. They do broaden out a little. Um, but keep in mind, with this particular model, as you move to the right, the selection coefficients are getting weaker and weaker. And also, in a larger population, uh, we'll return to this, you maintain more variation because there's less drift just causing loss of alleles. Right, so we expect the distributions to get broader in some sense as you move to the right. Simple dependence on N. N log. I, I, I guess simple is the key word here. I wouldn't say it's simple, but there is a dependence on N. It, it's true that as you move to the right, the distribution will get broader. All right. Just, that's because I picked a particular model in which the selection coefficients are getting smaller because you're approaching the perfect molecule. We're assuming perfect mixing. This, yeah, these are uh, random. Well, these are actually haploid populations. It's a one locus <laughs> model, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's not a structured population. And, and there's no uh, newer redshift phenomenon for these guys. Uh, no, there's no, uh, there's no, um, well, there's no Muller's ratchet because it's a, a single locus model. There's selection against these really bad alleles. Right, but you're not accumulating other mutations in the background. In reality, if this was asexual uh, over a long period of time, these guys would probably go extinct. And well, these will all go extinct, maybe. Um, you'll get to the point where the population's large enough so the back mutation rate may rescue you. But yeah, there's no none, none of that going on in this particular analysis. Okay, so to think about how this would apply then to the mutation rate, again, we have an allelic series, and um, let's see, red would be a mutator allele. As you're moving farther and farther to the right, your mutation rate's going up, so that's bad. And as you move farther and farther to the left, that's a lower mutation rate, that's good. So suppose we start with a popular effective size of 10 to the fifth. This would be something like a vertebrate population or a land plant population. And we start with a state where the, the mutation rate's very, very high, and it wanders down and it gets in this gray area and it gets stuck. And then we start here with a red rate and it gets gradually wanders in there and the gray area stays there forever. And the green starting conditions, we're, we're in this gray area and we stayed there forever. And down here, we start with a very, very low mutation rate and lo and behold, the mutation rate increases. Now, some people have argued for the adaptive nature of mutation, and it's good to have an optimal mutation rate, but keep in mind there's no beneficial mutations at all uh, in these analyses. The only reason this is going up is because the advantage of these guys is so weak, selection can't hold the mutation rate down. So all these guys get up into this gray area here, and that's the drift barrier. And then if we increase the population size by 100, the gray area moves down by two orders of magnitude. It's just a change in scaling due to the population size. So the prediction is for the mutation rate, uh, it should, it should uh, decrease uh, with increase. It should be inversely rela related to the uh, effective size of a population. We'll show you some data on that in a few minutes. Oh, the blue one, yeah. Yeah, the blue one would eventually get up there, but this is such a low mutation rate <laughs> that you're generating mutator alleles at so, so long of a rate that it would take you a very long time, but you would eventually get up into the gray area, right? 
and these are stochastic uh, simulations, of course. If we started with another one here, it would follow a different path, but it would eventually get up there. too much about the time scale here because that part of that is just happened the time scale here of course is a lot shorter it's just a, a function of what mutation rates I happen to, to use in the I'm just trying to illustrate a general principle can you use this to understand the mutated phenotype in cancer where the effective population size goes down because everything is cloned locally compared to um, Well, mutator phenotypes in cancer usually arise because a, a critical gene has been hit. Um, and that just starts a new cell lineage. It, it's a mutator lineage. I don't think it's so much of a function of uh, the effective number of cells in the tissue, but it does raise an issue. And, and I won't get into the theory. We, we've worked on this. And so, and Yo Awasa, another guy who's coming here, has worked in this area too. There is a so-called two-hit model of cancer. And so you require two mutations. The first one comes along, and uh, it's not a problem until the second one comes along, and away you go with cancer. So then a larger cell lineage that has more of that first mutation uh, is a bigger target for the second one for cancer. So there's a famous example of this. It's called Lynch syndrome, actually. And hopefully nobody here has it or has relatives who has it. It's predisposition to colon cancer. And uh, it's a, a one hit or a two hit model. If you're born with one, and it's a mismatch repair locus. So if one of your mismatch repair alleles is knocked out, the other one gets hit and you're, you're a goner. You, you, if you're born with one bad mismatch repair, you, you're not gonna be around after about 15 years of age. But even if you've got two intact ones, if one of them goes bad in some tissue, then you're in this region where there's just a waiting time for the second one to occur, and away you go. But isn't cancer, many cancers, aren't they necessarily structured populations? Because mm -hmm. the action happens at the edge of a tumor. Right. And that's where you care right. about these changes. Yeah. So in a sense, the population size might be very small because you're Yeah, so let's return to that. Uh, I'm going to, I hope I'll have time to get into some borderline uh, material that bears on cancer because I think this relates back to uh, the advantages or disadvantages of evolving very high levels of multicellularity. I and mean, it's one of the prices we pay as, as mammals is cancer. And I think once you get, uh, the punchline will be that once you get to be highly multicellular, it becomes more and more difficult to select uh, for mechanisms that minimize cancer and hopefully I'll, I'll that's just a statement here. There's some technical details behind it. So this issue of the drift theory hypothesis, I want to point out, uh, bears on all issues in evolutionary biology. It actually connects back nicely to some earlier work. And so this connects back to the early selection mutation controversy. So there's a paper uh, by Dan Hartle and Dan Dykeisen, uh, former faculty members at WashU. Uh, I think this is probably, they were probably there when they did this work. And uh, what Hartle pointed out was that the natural outcome of selection is neutrality. I mean, that's basically what's going on with that drift barrier hypothesis. Those final distributions, those are all alleles that are effectively neutral with respect to each other. 
they're not neutral in absolute sense, but they're neutral with respect to each other. So this is a familiar Michaelis-Menten enzyme kinetic uh, function. And the point here is that if you move some enzyme with efficiency so you're further and further out on this curve, it asymptotes. So the farther you get out on the curve, the selective advantage of moving further becomes diminishingly small and eventually becomes so small that the power of drift overwhelms the power of selection. And so selection will push you up into this regime where you have effective neutrality. So this, this point was made uh, way back in 1985. Now there's another interesting observation in protein biology. It's been around for a long time. I don't think people still really understand why it's true in an evolutionary sense. But this has to do with the, the mar, what, what people often call the margin of protein stability. And this could apply to, say, protein folding or the interface between two monomeric subunits forming a domain. And the point is that remarkably, uh, often it only takes one mutation or two or three at the most mutations to completely knock out the stability of a protein and that seems like kind of a risky way uh, to build your proteins but you can use exactly the same argument uh, if you imagine stability uh, fitness being related to protein stability in some way it's going to be in a nonlinear fashion and again we expect selection just to push you up far enough where again, you're at the drift barrier and it can't push you any further. So I think this might help explain this uh, interesting observation of the, the margin of stability that people see all the time in proteins. And some folks trying to reconcile this argument, some protein biologists have argued that, well, maybe uh, if you, you make a protein more and more stable, you're gonna compromise its function, but there's dozens and dozens of examples of people engineering proteins to have a better uh, stability and not compromising the function. So this provides a potential evolutionary argument for that pattern. Okay, so hopefully you understand the drift barrier hypothesis and drift bears on all species, any kind of adaptation, any species, at least in some way. So that's, and hopefully I've, I've somewhat demystified the concept of random genetic drift because it does take on this sort of mystical uh, connotation often. And we'll get back to that in a second, actually, uh, associated with this man's work, Jan Drake. So if you go back 22 years in time, 23, what, what year are we in? 2013, 22, okay. Um, this is a summary of all the data that existed on mutation rates in all of life. Um, and Jan, this is a very intriguing paper that Jan wrote and uh, he speculated at the time, but he's a very strong, strong believer in this pattern. He gets very angry if you say that you found some data that fall off this point. And I'll show you some data in a second that uh, supports him in some way, but not in all ways by any means. In any event, here's the data. It's another one of these log-log plots. G is genome size. And uh, this is the mutation rate per base, the slope's minus one. So what does that mean? It means if you mul multiply the mutation rate per base by the number of bases, that's a constant. And that constant is 0.003. So Jan made the argument that all microbial species have a genome-wide mutation rate of about 0.003, right? So that means three out of every thousand baby microbes will have a mu one mutation in them. Okay, so 
this is based on rather limited data. Only three of these organisms are cellular. Okay, these are bacteriophage viruses of bacteria. DNA. Uh, yeah, these are DNA uh, bacteriophage. Yeah. RNA is also on the curve. No, not in this plot. I think I might have that in an upcoming. But they do fall on the curve. Yeah, we'll see in a second. Um, so now you're down to three data points, and no matter statistical finessing is going to make that a significant relationship. Uh, on the other hand, we do have the yeast in there, and the other fungus, Neurospora, and we have E. coli. But that's where we were uh, not so long ago. And uh, Jan was so intrigued by this pattern, he's got this great line in, the, in his abstract. Because this rate's uniform in such diverse organisms, it's likely to be determined by deep general forces. And Jan never really told us what those deep general forces were, but I would like to believe that they're population genetics and random genetic drift, as we'll see in a few minutes. So we uh, have, and a few other labs have been um, making attempts to see how generalized this, this pattern is. And we do these experiments that are quite labor intensive and uh, really quite boring for a long period of time until the data come in. So we call these mutation accumulation experiments. They're, they're very conceptually simple experiments. We start with it, we usually work with clones or, or completely inbred lines. And uh, this is a Daphne, a microcrustacean, for example, that we work in. And you feed the mom really well, and the next day she's presented you with 100 babies. And we make 100 lines or 50 lines, whatever the number is. And then every generation, we take these lines through a population bottleneck of one. We pick random individuals. And that means if that individual has a mutation, it's in the line forevermore. We've done everything possible to eliminate natural selection. So unless the mutation is lethal or causes complete sterility, we capture the mutation. And we, we capture some pretty debilitating mutations. So we capture almost every base substitution mutation, any, any gene duplication, gene deletion. We even get cases of, of uh, partial chromosome losses in some experiments. The effective population size is one. The effective population size is one. And we don't care if we eliminate lethals. Lethals are irrelevant to uh, a natural population. In one of our yeast experiments, uh, lo and behold, as, we, as the experiment proceeded, there was actually partial genome duplication. But we were able to pick that up using the techniques that I'll, I'll mention. So if you don't believe, I mean, we really do capture. So some of these experiments go with, with metazoans can go for three, four, five hundred generations. And for bacteria, we usually try to get out about 3,000. I guess we're now shooting for about 5,000 generations. But uh, these are just some, it's just sort of a cute photograph of, of two of the lines at the end of an experiment with C. elegans, the elegant nematode. So that's what an elegant nematode is supposed to look like. And uh, these guys are just lying on petri beds of E. coli. You know, they're having their food brought to them and at optimal temperature. And, you know, they don't have anything to worry about. These mutants would probably last a few minutes and your local uh, compost heap or your local pill bug that they hitch rides with. So here's a big rotund one. Here's a really bizarre one with the kinked uh, tail and a protruding vulva. That's where their, their uh, eggs come out of. Uh, you get strange behavioral mutants um, that, you know, all kinds of stuff that would normally be debilitating. So we capture everything. 
Uh, some of the eukaryotes we've done this work with uh, are illustrated here. We've now done the plant, and we just finished the other plant. Um, Daphnia work we've uh, got completed now. Uh, yeast we did quite a while ago in C. elegans. And I'll return to this uh, work on paramecium because this bears on issues of germline somatic uh, separation in a, a neat way. And we're in the midst of uh, doing a diatom. Um, anybody else has some good eukaryotes um, to do this work with, uh, let us know. We're trying to do this. I know you guys did dictyostelium and I have a visitor from Turkey who decides she wants to do Dicti too, so maybe someday, although your results are disheartening, <laughs> they fit in well with the overall data. That could be a very long experiment. But basically, we need organisms that we can put through these, they're easy to grow in the lab and put through bottlenecks. We're not. Sorry, I know that Jeff Townsend has done some of this with Drosophila, sort of for a targeted, re but do you know to what extent, do you know how long those have gone or if they've yielded anything? Yeah, we haven't touched, well, we, we've got a paper coming out on flies, but in general, we don't touch Drosophila because there's enough Drosophila biologists that are out there, it'll just get done, we don't have to do it. And uh, Peter Keatley, for example, has been involved in this using some lines that David Houle developed, a former guy uh, from my lab, and we actually sequence a bunch of Houle's lines too. Interestingly, the two lines, the two genotypes, this might get back to your point. No, I guess you had a different point. Uh, the two lines of Drosophila, natural isolates, had about a fourfold, very significant fourfold difference in the mutation rate. So, you know, it doesn't mask out these order of magnitude changes, but there's certainly variation for the mutation rate among genomes. So now we're trying to extend this. Uh, we're not trying. We are extending this kind of work to a very large number of bacterial species. So we want to stretch out to the extent possible Drake's relationship and see if it really holds across all microbes. So here are the bugs that we're uh, doing. Um, it covers the entire range of variation in genome size in bacteria, which unfortunately isn't all that large. The smallest one we've got is a mesoplasma that I'll show you in a, in a few minutes. It's got a genome less than a million bases. And then the biggest one that we've got going, this is in collaboration with uh, Greg Velasquez's lab. And you heard a little bit about Mixococcus yesterday. Um, and that's as big as, as we can go. Uh, all kinds of bizarre ecologies and, and what have you uh, with these bugs. We've got a couple interesting ones. These guys that live in uh, nuclear reactors, so those are gonna be pretty interesting. We've got some that are symbionts. We, we try to avoid pathogens here because we don't want the lab technician to get sick uh, doing these experiments, but we do have some collaborations going with a few other labs who are willing to do the pathogens. So we've got results coming in now on cholera, uh, for example, and uh, Pseudomonas, I think we're doing sort of with with you guys at, at this point, um, and so on. So the list is big. The main thing we're trying to cover is the full range of genome size, but also the full range of AT composition. I'm, I'm not gonna show you results on this, but so far every organism we've ever looked at has biased mutation in the direction of A's and T's. Very biased, even GC-rich genomes. So we're trying, if there's any generality that's emerged from this kind of work, that's, that's one of them. And I have a standing offer, if any of you have your favorite, a really favorite microbe that you really like, um, that you're willing to streak and plate, 
50 plates for about three or four months, we'll then sequence 50 lines at the end of the experiment. So we, that's what we do with these. We try to keep them out for about 5,000 generation cell divisions. That's enough to get somewhere on the order of three or 400 mutations. And then we just sequence the whole genome. We sequence each to 100x coverage. So there's absolutely no errors in finding the mutation rate. Mutations. Oh, no, we, we get everything. We know the whole genome. We have the whole genome sequence. Um, and then, it, well, I'll show you in a second. Well, we always test that because if there's selection operating on the lines, you might expect uh, uh, the, the rate of accumulation of non-synonymous mutations to be less than the silent, and we don't see that. And that's just further evidence that there's, I mean, these are colonies, but if you do the math, and there can be selection in a colony uh, over a period of 10 generations, but when you do the math, the problem is that most of the mutations that will arisen in the colony will, by the numbers game, will be late in the colony growth, and there's not time for selection to eliminate them. huge degree of tolerance to tRNA. Right? They must have huge variety of tRNA frequencies in that genome. Mm -hmm. Not every synonymous mutation has the same. Oh, yeah, well, when we look at synonymous, we, we're, we're usually focused on fourfold redundant sites. Um, in any event, we, we find very little evidence that selection's operating in these lines. It's probably enough to eliminate maybe 2 to 3% of the mutations. You can figure that out if you know the average selective effect of the mutation, you know the genealogy, and we've, we've done that. So there's always going to be a little bias, but it's it's trivial compared to the error variance in measuring the rate. We have no molecule. I thought we had one at one time, but I guess you're right. So maybe you would like to push some plates of a molecule. Yeah. So anyhow, the, the point that I'm making is it makes sense if we're going to do this work, it makes sense. We don't care what the organism is. So we'd be like to getting the, this provides a permanent resource for anybody working on an organism because it's a catalog. It tells us this is what the null pattern of evolution at the molecular level would be in these bugs. So if you have an organism you think would be really useful, as I said, we don't care that much about which species we're doing. We're getting some archaebacteria added in here and so on, but you know we can't do the, the guys that are highly thermophilic because you can't grow them on, on plates. And anaerobes are pretty hard to deal with, too. What about E. coli under aerobic and anaerobic conditions? Uh, yeah, we're, tr we're going to try to do that. So I, um, the way this project works is I've got a colleague, Pat Foster, who you probably know. Um, she's traditionally been an E. coli biologist. She's doing everything you can imagine with E. coli. Um, She's taking every one of the uh, genes that influence re DNA repair and knocking them out one by one and looking at the mutation profile. And that will tell us what each one of them means to the organism. And then my lab is focusing on all the different bugs. But we want to do it with uh, anaerobes as well. Yep. Anaerobic E. coli, yeah. Okay, so here's what you get at the end of one of these experiments. This is a, what we call a wheel diagram, so you probably can't see it all here, but this is the end result of an experiment with a soil bacterium, Bacillus subtilis, and there's 50 rings around here, and each black dot 
is uh, the location of a mutation. So you can sort of look at this, and maybe you can't see it too well here, um, but you can sort of see some spatial patterning. Um, it's harder to see the spatial patterning unless you've really souped up the mutation rate, which we do by knocking out mismatch repair. But anyhow, here's the result of Bacillus. 50 lines, uh, they went for 5,000 generations. We harvested 450 mutations, and the mutation rate is about three times 10 to the minus 10. So this is a very, very tiny number we're trying to estimate. Is this equal number of genes on the both strands? I think it roughly is. I, I can't tell you off the top of my head for bacillus. Oh, yeah, the, the, these bacterial chromosomes are about 98, 99% genes. Okay, and they're spread on both strands, but I can't give you an exact number on what. That could skew the. Mm -hmm. Right. <coughs> so I'm just trying to give, convey to you the overall uh, mutation rate pattern. Now here, to give you an idea of the scaling, so this is mesoplasma. It has a genome, and I've tried to draw these to the appropriate scale. So this guy has a genome size of, of uh, less than a million bases, so it's less than a, a fifth of bacillus. And here, uh, this experiment only went for 2,000 generations, and the reason was is the lines were starting to get quite sick. So we expected that, gee, maybe this thing has a high mutation rate. And lo and behold, so we, we harvested them early, and lo and behold, it, it did, in fact, have a very, very high mutation rate. Probably can't see all the dots there, but after 2,000 generations, we had 600 mutations. And the mutation rate's about 10 to the minus 8. So it's way substantially higher than in bacillus. And E. coli rate is down about this level, too. Just to give you an idea how high this rate is in mesoplasma, which is related to a mycoplasma, but doesn't hurt us growing in the lab, that's the rate of mutation per base in the human genome per human generation. All right, But this is doing it per cell division in these guys. So it's a very, very high rate. Do they lack mismatch repair genes? Uh, mesoplasma does last, lack mis mismatch repair. Mm -hmm. What about Brendan We don't know yet. We're just, I don't know. You might be able to ask me that before I leave here. It's, uh, that experiment's been completed, and the BGI's now got the DNA, and that's going to be a very interesting one. But keep in mind, uh, we're not measuring its mutation rate in a nuclear reactor. We're measuring its mutation in our lab. Um, ultimately, it would be neat to, to compare it in different environments, but it might be interesting to see if it has an unusually low rate because it's had to soup up its uh, re repair enzyme so much because of the normal environment, but that's why we're doing that work, so we'll see. Okay, so now to summarize where we are, let's go back to Drake's work. And remember, it was a log-log plot of base submutation right to genome size. And what I've illustrated here is all the results for uh, uh, what you would call microbial species. And I think maybe I don't have the RNA viruses on here. These are the, I've included single and double-stranded uh, DNA viruses on here. Okay, so all the blue guys are U bacteria. We have a couple archies here. And for just for a second, let's ignore these four points up here. These are microbial eukaryotes, including Pombi and trypanosomes there. 
That's Chlamydomonas and that's Paramecium. I'll talk more about in detail. But the point here is if you're willing to ignore those four points, and we'll see why we should in just a second, the slope's minus 1.1. So it's not significantly different from the minus one that Drake originally suggested to us. Um, but on the other hand, there's uh, something else I need to tell you. If you add other eukaryotes into this plot, in fact, these five points here are these five points here, okay? That's the average of these eubacteria and that's the average of the archaeas. And then what I've added into this plot, now we're expanding the genome size up to uh, nearly a billion base size genome. That's human, that's mouse. Uh, Fly, Daphnia, and C. elegans are in there. I can't tell you which one's which, and that's Arabidopsis. But the point here is that when you move into the eukaryotic domain, there's not this negative relationship. You get a complete change in the scaling and the mutation rate with genome size. Okay, so. I think you showed GC content. Yeah. Does that change the mutation rate significantly? Is it correlated? Well, I, I've sort of skipped over uh, this, but GC, remember I, I did mention that uh, GCs always mutate to ATs more rapidly than the reciprocal. So you might expect if you had a genome that hi, had higher GC content, all other things being equal, it would have a higher mutation rate because it's harboring the more mutable alleles in some sense. Look, he's polymerizing and and these polymerases of the proofreading mechanisms uh, don't break down for the GC preferential? I think it's very unclear how, what the preference is there. I'll, I'll return to the proofreading stuff in a, a second, though. Not, not in great detail. I thought I'd jump over the spectrum of mutations, but, but that's a good point. The rate, all other things being equal, just by changing uh, the nucleotide composition of a gene, you'll change the rate. Not the conditional rate per G, but if you put more G's and C's in your gene, your gene is going to be more vulnerable to mutations. Okay, so we don't think that genome size is really the, what did Drake call the deep mysterious force? We don't think genome size per se is driving the evolution of the mutation rate. Instead, what we think is that there's some common factor driving the evolution of both genome size and the mutation rate, and that causes the two to be correlated. Just a classic example of two things being correlated with third and therefore being correlated with each other. And that thing is the, the power of drift. Now, the problem we have here is uh, we've just went from a situation where we've got this really, really tiny number that's extremely difficult to estimate, the mutation rate. The effective population size is this really gigantic number that's hard to estimate. And so we only can do this indirectly. And we, we do it in the following way that I think some of you will be familiar with. Um, imagine silent sites, and assume there's no selection on silent sites in nature, then new variation will come in to silent sites at a rate. We're comparing two, so we, we have random individuals in the population, and we're just lining up their sequences. And imagine two copies that are identical. They will become different at a rate twice the mutation rate because we're comparing two sequences. That's the rate of input of new variation. And this is by definition the rate of loss of variation. It's the power of random genetic drift. So it's another way is input output diagrams. 
and at equilibrium, the standing level of variation at silent sites is four times the effective population size times the mutation rate. So we can readily measure standing variation at silent sites. People do this all the time. And a, a few years ago, I summarized the existing data. Uh, from uh, I guess there's about 100 or so, maybe more species in, in this analysis. I just want to give you a crude idea where the data reside. Uh, as you move from vertebrates uh, up into smaller and smaller bugs, this becomes a larger and larger number. Okay? Uh, we humans have the lowest level of standing variation of anybody on the planet has been studied in, in detail, despite the fact that we have a very, very high base mutation rate. So U is large in humans, but N is low compared to other organisms. Now, a long-standing puzzle has been, well, this should increase linearly with effective population size, all other things being equal. So isn't it peculiar that the standing level of variation is only maybe 100 times higher in a microbe than it is in invertebrates? Surely the population size is more than 100 times higher, right? The effective population size long-term for humans is about 10,000. So if you multiply by 100, and that's a bacteria, you wouldn't even be able to see the colony of bacteria of, of a million cells. So. Uh, Richard Lewinton many years ago called this the paradox of variation. Why is it that as you increase the population size, the variation doesn't go up? Well, the reason it doesn't go up is because as N goes up, selection is more efficient and natural selection drives the mutation rate down. So it isn't in all other things being equal. This isn't staying constant Wait, with an increase in... Variation does go up, just as go up linear. It does go up, that's correct, but it doesn't go up linearly. Yep. And uh, made a much slower rate than you might naively expect. Make a love, love plot of that to see the actual variation versus the effective population. Uh, yeah, I guess you could make it because, as I'll show you in a second, um, well, it's going to be much less. I mean, you already stated the case, really, but. What we want to do now, now we know U for a bunch of organisms, and if we have this measure of standing variation, we can factor out U and get the effective size. And so we then want to ask the question, uh, now if we compare the mutation rate uh, for these different bugs with the effective population size, what's the pattern? The prediction under the drift barrier hypothesis would be a slope of minus one. And I've gotten two sets of data here, and uh, the, both the slope, both cases, the slope is not significantly different from minus one. But there are two sets of data here. The blue data points are all for uh, uh, all for uh, bacterial species, and the black data points are all for uh, uh, unicellular eukaryotes. So there's Neurospora, for example, Plasmodium, Chlamydomonas. Uh, there's our Paramecium, and so on. So what? Is there some way to estimate the effective population size from sex chromosomes versus autosomes because they have different effects? Yeah, yeah, you could do that. That's right. Um, and so for sex chromosomes, uh, the uh, equilibrium level of variation is no longer four NEU. It's depending on the system. It's somewhere around three NEU uh, for an X chromosome in an XY system because there's in X, Y, and X, X. Yeah, you can do that. It gets a little bit hairier because the total effective population size is a function of the female, what we call the female effective size in the male, 
and that starts to enter when you're talking about sex chromosomes and things. There's quite a bit fewer data on sex chromosome, uh, but you can, yeah, absolutely, you can do that. You could do it with mitochondria too. Oh, the timeline of the experiment's not, not long enough to change the mutation rate, yeah. I think we can safely assume that. One way we can test for that is you would see some lines that would have become mutator strains, for example, and have unusually high rates, and we I think we've only ever seen one line that looked like an out, a significant outlier. I mean, they're not terribly long experiments. Okay, so the puzzle that we're remaining, we, we have remaining here is why these two sets of data? So what this is telling us is for the same effective population size, apparently selection can drive down uh, the mutation rate more if you're a eukaryote than if you're a bacterium, and why would that be? Well, that would be because there's one thing we've left out of the equation here. Remember, selection's not operating on the mutation rate per base, really. It's operating on the mutation rate per genome, right? Because it's an indirect effect of all the deleterious mutations that are being produced elsewhere in the genome. Now, if there's more genes to break in your genome, you're a, better, a, big, a bigger mutational target. So we expect selection to be able to drive the mutation rate down further in these guys than these guys because they have roughly two to four times as many genes. So when you scale the mutation rate now, you simply take the mutation rates that I showed you before, multiply them by the amount of coding DNA in the proteome, uh, everything, all the data become unified into to one plot. And not only that, I've added uh, additional data here. Before I just showed you the microbial data, but now we've got all the data for the five eukaryotes that we have good, multicellular eukaryotes that we have good rates. Uh, and there they all are. So this is the amount, this is the number of mutations arising in protein coding genes in a genome per generation. So for, for us mammals, it's up around one per genome. And that doesn't include all the silent site mutations. So a newborn human has uh, probably on the order of 100. You're, you're all mutants, many, and me included. I have a Hox gene mutation. I'm not making this up. Um, we have about 100 mutations as, as newborn uh, humans, okay, that our moms and dads kindly passed on to us. So there's a unifying explanation. So all the data seem to fit together. Uh, really well. The two major determinants of the mutation rate are the magnitude of random genetic drift that a species experiences and the total number of uh, significant, uh, uh, the total significant coding DNA in the genome. You, if instead of taking the total amount of predicted coding DNA based on current proteomes and you just take the total amount, can you get any in interesting information about uh, miscalculations or erroneous annotations of what the effective proteome actually is. So what I'm going for is we have we have what we think is an effective proteome base that we can compare with some genome, but I'm wondering about the possibility that regions that we think are non-proteomic actually are coding. Yeah, no, I, I don't, yeah, sorry, I did, maybe I should clarify. We're just using the amount of uh, protein coding DNA as a surrogate. Um, but if you think of other parts of the genome, so generally 
the amount of tRNA associated DNA in a genome is, is strongly correlated with the amount of protein coding genes. We don't really know yet about all the non-coding RNAs, but all I can say is just using the pro, if they, they just scale with the protein coding DNA, then nothing's gonna change in this pattern. Okay, so I need to get moving on. So if this kind of thing, um, this drift-rear hypothesis were a general explanation, we ought to be able to see the evidence at the level of the actual replication machinery of things getting worse in eukaryotes versus prokaryotes. And for those of you who aren't aware of it, this is the way we replicate our DNA in a cartoon fashion. We start with a thing called DNA polymerase, and they're usually pretty good. You're going, marching down. If you've got an A there, you want to put a T in there. And um, you're, you make an error about one in 10,000 times. Uh, but fortunately, we have a, uh, we're like uh, Microsoft Word, we have a spell checker. So our polymerases have evolved a proofreading domain. So if an error is initially made, you can look back. Uh, if you haven't moved on too far, it's not as good as Microsoft Word. But it, uh, if you've got an error there, you can look back and proofreading domain can fix things up. But even that's error prone. We have a third line of defense called mismatch repair mechanism. So if you've gone on, now you're left with a bubble in your DNA and mismatch repair can detect those and, and make a change as well. Although there is an issue of knowing which one's parental and which one's derived, right? And we won't get into that. The e. coli folks have worked that out pretty nicely for their bug though. So those are the three molecular lines of defense uh, against mutation. And a lot of work has been done on these polymerase uh, enzymes. Uh, because of their importance to genome stability. And so I've summarized a lot of the data on the error rates associated, base misincorporation rates associated with uh, uh, the various DNA polymerases and the usual suspects. So unfortunately, we don't have a huge phylogenetic range of data here. We have the bacterium, again, the fungus, and then we have mammalian tissue culture. Most of our replication is carried out by one or two major polymerases that copy about 98% or so, 97% of all our DNA during replication. So they're the ones that are responsible for the, the bulk of, of housekeeping when we replicate our DNA. And if you look at the error rates in yeast and mammals, they're substantially higher than they are in, in microbes, no question. Now we also have another, uh, we have a strange way of replicating DNA that might be a remnant of the so-called RNA world. When we start to replicate, uh, have to lay down a little RNA primer. Uh, and that's all associated with things like Okazaki fragments and so on that some of you will know. And then that RNA primer later has to be removed and filled in with uh, a DNA primer that I'll just call the primase. So it fills in a patch that's equivalent to maybe 1% of all genome replication. So by definition, selection can be, cannot be operating as stringently on a polymerase that's involved in uh, fewer DNA transactions than another. So we expect these to be more error prone than the major polymerase, and indeed they are, and they're uh, much more error prone in uh, uh, the eukaryotes than they are in the prokaryotes. Now in the bottom panel, I've summarized uh, the replication fidelity data for all polymerases that we have data for. So E. coli, for example, has five polymerases, and some of you will have heard of these as sometimes they're 
uh, called error-prone polymerases. And there's a good reason for that. They have high error rates. And there's been a raging battle going on with people who work on these things uh, in bacteria as to whether these are, have maintained high error rates for adaptive reasons. So these are often elicited only during extreme times of stress. And some of these polymerases, if you have a, a damaged uh, piece of DNA, they're the only way you can get through and replicate. So you have to pull them in. Uh, and they, they have higher error rates. So these are used even much less frequently than the primases. The point I'm making here is that you don't have to invoke uh, selection for a high error rate to win the lottery ticket during bleak times to explain these high error rates. Selection is going to be operating on that replication fidelity much less strongly on these than these than these. So this is actually the expectation is that the error rate should in fact be higher. Now these bugs can't live without them because they're the only way to, re to get through a damaged base. But in getting through them and filling in the space they make a lot of errors. And then you see the same thing with these high error prone uh, polymerases in yeast and humans. We have one polymerase that makes it has an error rate of 10%. Okay, so mismatch repair, what about that as a third line of defense? If you go back and look at these numbers, these error rates are, are pretty high. Now, the total mutation rate's the product of all these error rates together, but the initial stage is typically around 10 to the minus four before you get to proofreading and then proofreading improves things by another maybe two orders of magnitude. Somebody was asking about proofreading earlier. Then what about mismatch repair? This turns out to be pretty easy to do to, to estimate the uh, mismatch repair error rate. The way we do it is we do the kind of mutation rate experiments we just mentioned, and we go in, take the same line, and knock out mismatch repair, and then measure the mutation rate all over again. And the difference between the mutation rates tells you how many so-called premutations are being caught by the mismatch repair and prevented from going through. And if you do these experiments, when you knock out mismatch repair, go really fast. They're done in a month. You just can't keep the lines alive if you're bottlenecking them. And so here's, yeah, here's E. coli, the, the uh, Pat Foster's results, two times 10 to the minus 10. If you knock out mismatch repair, it goes up over a hundred and uh, about a hundred fifty fold. And that means mismatch repair is, is capturing, uh, is fixing everything uh, but about 0.7% of the premutations. And so we've got data on this from a number of different bugs. We, we did this with C. elegans, for example. And here's the results. The only thing I want to point out with respect to this graph is the, these error rates are pretty high. So mismatch repair is there as our third line of defense. But it's not all that accurate, and it's certainly not as accurate as the, the early uh, polymerase stages. And this makes sense too because by the time you've gone through the first polymerase stage, then the proofreading stage, there's not that much for the mismatch repair enzymes to do. So selection has to be weaker in operating on them. I'm surprised that the fission yeast is six times higher. I wouldn't, um, I, at this point, I wouldn't make too much about uh, the comparative data here because all these have a lot of noise but on the other hand they're all uniformly uh, greater than you know about 0.01 that that's the point I want to make um, so we're a, a lot of these data are taken from the literature and some I think are probably not that reliable but they are very very high and consistently high error rates 
want to point out one more thing uh, with respect to errors in organisms, and I, I do want to get into the somatic uh, mutation issue just to provide a way for people to perhaps think about things, since that's what the focus of the meeting is. But uh, one thing I want to emphasize here is that uh, genome misincorporations, replication errors, is one of many, many kinds of errors that we're confronted with. We also have the problem of transcription errors and translation error. So when we make mRNAs, that's not an error-proof, error-free uh, process by any means, and, and probably translation errors are even higher. Um, so we're trying to figure out what these uh, rates are, and the, the null hypothesis is that they'll be much higher than the replication error rates, because these errors are transient. In general, you don't pass on your transcripts, at least for very long, to your kids. They're not inherited. So selection has to be weaker on uh, the transcription and translation error rate. And this is not an easy problem to solve. But transcription uh, errors cannot be invisible. They could also result in a replication error. Yeah, there can be a feedback. Yeah. yeah, so if you have a transcription error and a polymerase, that's right. Yeah. No, it's not known. I mean, in general, you know, when we measure these mutation rates, we have no idea why they're occurring, right? We don't know which, I mean, an odd thing in E. coli is there's, I think, about uh, 17 of the main DNA polymerase molecules in a typical cell. Those error-prone polymerases that aren't supposed to be used in a healthy cell, they're in about 300 copies. One possibility is that most mutations in E. coli happen because an error-prone polymerase falls down on the DNA instead of the normal polymerase transiently and makes the mutation rate. We, we just don't know. Okay, so how do we get at this transcription error rate problem? This is a really, really difficult problem. Uh, we've been struggling this for a couple of years. I won't go through all the failures uh, of, of doing this, but I'll tell you how we do it. Now, you might think, okay, we want to get the transcription error rate. This is going to be easy. You just isolate a cDNA library, you sequence the cDNAs, and all the errors are transcription errors. But the problem is that, as any of you do DNA sequencing, know that the error rate of sequencing is about one in a hundred. Sometimes you can get it up to one in a thousand, but never better than that these days. And the problem is the transcription error rate's not that high. So that means if you just do a raw sequencing and look at a cDNA library, all the errors are, for all practical purposes, are sequencing errors. So the way we do this, you have to replicate your experiment. We always do in science. So the way we do this, and it's not so easy at the molecular level, we isolate our mRNAs. And then as, as usual in sequencing, we fragment the mRNA molecules and they get random breakpoints. And then what we do is we uh, glue uh, oligotags, random oligotags. So we have eight mer random eight mers. So they pr provide barcodes for these guys. Okay, and then we linearly amplify off the mRNA. So we go through one round of application to DNA, uh, CD, make cDNAs, and we actually now pull these off with beads and then do another harvest and another harvest and another harvest. That means that we've replicated the production of cDNAs that we'll sequence from individual mRNA molecules. And that way, if you sequence enough, when you go back to your data, then you can find uh, sequences that have the same breakpoint and the same oligo. In fact, we put the oligos on both ends now, 
And if you find that, there's no question it came from exactly the same mRNA molecule. And when you do that, you'll, you'll get a population of sequencing, and, and it'll usually look like that. There'll be these little errors sprinkled all over the place. Those are the sequencing errors. But then occasionally you'll find a situation where every one has the same change at the same position, and those are the true transcription errors. And so this is, this is a lot of work. Um, and it's taken us a couple of years to get to this point. And one worry here, if you're going to do this with a multicellular organism, is I think this works really well, but what else might this be? You're working with a multicellular... Pardon? Well, we, do, we don't do it with every fragment. We sequ you, you have to sequence deep enough so you have replicates, for sure. So you have to do a lot of sequencing. Yep. This and this. Yes. Oh, we would. Well, we would. We would map these back to a genome. But this is just meant to be some mRNA somewhere. And this is another. I'm just trying to illustrate. Almost everything looks like this. And occasionally you get that. On the RNA, we're linearly amplifying off the RNA. That's what makes it even harder. <laughs> because we don't want to amplify and get a snowball effect with the, the cDNAs. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, we're trying to come up with this estimate. So what else could these be? That Can't you do it by random? If you map random fragments, that's how most people do it, right? Random fragments that map mm -hmm. would have a, muta a true mutation which would kind of overlap on. But this is in an, in an mRNA, so suppose I don't know, suppose your mRNAs are from triosphosphate isomerase, right? And you pull them all out and you map them. Many, most of those will all have come off a different mRNA. We need them all to come from exactly the same mRNA molecule. You're not making yeah. averages, you're making specific. No, and the averages won't work because you have millions and, well, tens and hundreds of millions of these, these errors in one of these analyses. So you have to be able to pull these out. Okay, so one worry, yeah. Something called PCR errors? Um, yeah, there's PCR errors too. I'm not, I'm not, there's still another detail that I've left out here. Some of these are, are short enough so we can read in both directions. So we actually have overlapping reads in the middle. So we use that to factor out. So you guys are doing a great job. And any, any other way you can throw holes into this? or make holes in this, I'm, I'm all for it, because it's been a lot of work and we don't want to be screwing up. Now, with PCR errors, stripping those out would be the same logic, I think, as stripping out the sequencing errors that you would hope to be unlikely, you'd be unlikely to get the exact same PCR error over No, no, so if you have an early length. one, right? So if you make an early PCR error, it's going to show up like... But you're not amplifying step. off the PCR product, you're amplifying off the right. mRNA. That's the difference. Well, there's a, a final slight round of PCR, but... Okay, so there's one other issue here that... Right now, they're random RNAs, but you could select, you could do this. Uh, in fact, I think SID's doing something like this for mitochondrial, if, you, if that's all your interest was. Well, you're doing genomic stuff, so... How do you decide what tissue? Yeah. Uh, well, if it's a worm, and that, that's, this is a good point. So um, 
we just ground up a, a vat of worms, right? So, uh, well, it was a, wasn't, you know, it was a small quantity enough to get enough mRNA, but this is an issue. Um, because how, how the issue here is that could be a somatic mutation. You could have some cell that had a genomic mutation rate in it, and all the mRNAs that it happened to produce will do that. Okay, so what our hope is, and so here's, here's our estimate of the rate to give you some numbers and why we think this isn't a problem, but you know, if you were gonna grind up mice or something, you know, a whole mouse, it might be a bigger problem. But so here's what the rate is. So the transcription error rate for C. elegans is about 10 to the minus five. That's huge. So the genomic error rate in C. elegans is about four times, we have very good estimates of that. It's four, four times 10 to the minus nine. So the transcription error rate's 2,500 times higher than the replication error rate. So it qualitatively in the direction. That, if you just multiply this rate by the average length of transcripts, it's sort of daunting. What it means is about, in a worm, about 3% of transcripts have an error in them. Now the translation error rate's probably higher than this, so it's easily believable that about 10% of protein fragments in organisms have errors in them. And something like a ribosome, probably every ribosome has an error in it. Um, so those are the numbers. So I think it's, it's good news in some sense that this rate is this high. If the, if the somatic mutation rate were 10 to the minus five, we, we wouldn't be here, right? It, if you do the math and think about how many mutations would be in an average C. elegans cell at maturity. So, but I'm gonna show you somatic, some somatic rates uh, now just to give you an idea. Could so, you do single cell sequencing just to check what the somatic rate is from different parts of the you, you can do that, you could do that in principle and we've figured out ways to isolate single cells now. Um, that's gonna require a lot of sequencing. Um, it's not so easy with uh, a worm because you, you, you have to you know, actually isolate individual cells and things, but that's something we'd like to do. I think the real challenge would be getting enough mRNA from a single cell to do repeated rounds of first-strand synthesis. Because you can definitely make cDNA libraries from single cells because you just you know, plug yours to the replication uh, errors, but the mRNA template, I think, is probably limiting. It's probably not insoluble, but just tricky. Yeah, there's quite a few people doing single cell sequencing now. But again, you have to be very careful because any kind of errors that, if you do single cell sequencing, you have to do a whole genome amplification, right? And so any errors that initiate a whole genome amplification proliferate will look like an error in the single cell. So these are some really un unsolvable, almost unsolvable problems. I know for the physicist in the room, there's what's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and stuff like that, but we've got something approaching that right now, I think. Okay, I was going to talk about evolution of protective mechanisms and things, and uh, I'm running out of time, so I want to jump to some sort of just issues, and uh, there's no answers really here. I just want to present some issues with respect to uh, separation of germline and soma and what it might mean to the evolution of multicellularity. Um, it's not an issue that I spend all, all my time thinking about this, but I think these mutation rate results bear on them. So. To start, let's think about an organism that you don't normally think about with respect to multicellularity, paramecium, because it's a single-celled organism. But uh, in fact, it has a lot of relevance to the evolution of 
multicellularity in the sense that many multicellular organisms have a separate germline and somatic set of genomes. And ciliates have such a genetic system. So ciliates are, are binucleate. So they have one little, uh, that big blob there is called the macronucleus. That's the somatic nucleus. And then there's a little thing nestled right there. That's called the micronucleus. That's a germline nucleus. Now, normally, uh, ciliates are reproducing clonally. And there's no transcription whatsoever off the germline micronucleus. It's just like us. Any mutation that arises in that germline is irrelevant to the health of that cell. It only becomes relevant when it passes the family jewels on to the uh, kids during sexual reproduction. The macronucleus is an amplified version of the micronucleus, about a thousand copies of all the chromosomes. All transcription comes off the macronucleus. Now what happens with ciliates is when they go sexual, they throw out, just like a multicellular organism, you throw out the, the, the somatic nucleus and you transmit all your genes through the micronucleus and uh, away you go to the next generation. So the point here is that the way, at, and our interest in this got generated by the following observation. We measured the estimate of the mutation rate in paramecium. Remember I showed you this uh, set of results before. Uh, the scaling, and we did this experiment with paramecium. I think we bottlenecked them for like two years and finally we just said, okay, let's just assume they're gonna make Wah. and there's surely enough mutations in here. Let's just get this over with and sequence them. And we were expecting around three or 400 mutations, and uh, we found about 30. And we're very careful about this. We sequence at very high depth and so on. Um, and the mutation rate turns out to be very, very low, and, and it puzzled us for a, a little bit. But in fact, this is exactly what you expect for paramecium. Because remember, when selection's operating on the mutation rate, it's operating in the mutations and their cumulative effects in the next sexual generation, right? There's no selection. In fact, this is the reason we started the experiment with paramecium, because we knew we could accumulate mutations completely in the micronucleus, because there's no selection on it whatsoever, ever. And they don't get expressed until you have 100 generations before they go sexual, and there's about 100 generations between them. And when you do, you account for that, you bring paramecium right back up to where it ought to be. So ciliates are kind of a neat organism to think about uh, separate genetic effects operating on the somatic nucleus and uh, the germline. It's not a multicellular organism, of course, although there are some multicellular ciliates. I'm going to skip over this. These are some really weird polymerases we don't understand at all. We want to crystallize those. And it's got this incredibly low rate. We, you know, I'm trying to encourage one of my graduate students or something to start a, a company that would sell paramecium polymerase or something. It would fund the lab for a while. Um, Mike, can I interrupt? Are we coming to an actual pause point? I'm, we can I'm, continue another. I would just as soon finish if we okay. can, then you won't have to hear from me again. But I'm, I've got about uh, three slot, three or four slides. All That's right. it. We're under orders not to go past 3:15. Okay. Well, 3:15. Because there's a mandatory tea, coffee. And oh well, I can't finish <laughs> four slides in half a minute. It's okay. All right. Oh, let me let me do this fast okay. because this All is right. speculative. Okay, all these are germline rates. If you divide a few organisms, we have the number of cell divisions in the germline. 
So paramecium did this, and here's the fly and the worm and the human rate per cell division in the germline. So even though the human rate is very high per generation, we have over 100 cell divisions in the germline, so we're actually pretty good at the cell level. But this is what selection's operating on, and it gets accommodated by bringing the rate down per cell division. Now that's the germline rate, and here's the connection, I, I hope, with issues that you guys are interested in multicellularity. One can also estimate mutation rates in somatic tissues in a few key organisms that engineered. So there's a line of mice, for example, and this is used mainly in ecotoxicology. They're called big blue mice, and they're not blue and they're not big. But what they have is a LAC-Z construct. So some of you may be familiar with the way people measure mutation rates in E. coli is a LAC-Z construct, and it makes blue versus white colonies. You don't need to know the details, but there's been several hundred of these put on the chromosome of the mouse. You can harvest the tissue after X amount of time, put the LAC-Zs back in E. coli, and E. coli will tell you if, if the, the LAC-Z has mutated. So it's a reporter for tissue-specific mutation rates. Here's the germline rate in uh, uh, the mouse. And people have uh, harvested various sort of generic tissues in the mouse. And the main point I want to make is the rates are substantially higher. Uh, this is, uh, uh, well, they're all taken out to the same time period. But the amount of mutations accumulating in somatic tissues is substantially higher than it is in, in the germline itself. Testes might be expected to be a bit higher because this is sort of just a ground up testes, which isn't just the, the germline cells. But this is important because these mutations may be directly influencing the fitness of individuals. This is again normalized per generation of the cell. This isn't normalized per cell, it's just at a certain point in the life history of the mouse, compared all taken out. The, compared to what baseline? Compared to the original cell in the liver or compared to the, the germline? The mouse starts out, one cell, every cell starts out identical. Okay. You wait for a while and you cut out the colon and the brain and the epidermis and so on and look at the total number of mutations and there's more accumulated in the liver, maybe not surprisingly, than in the testes, but surprisingly there's the brain is a pretty good place. Usually the women in the audience have a good explanation for why the brain is operating like the testes, but um, the brain is a highly uh, metabolic or organ, so it's uh, somewhat surprising. That the number of what? Generations. Uh, not, in, not in the mouse. You can measure telomere length, presumably, right, for each of these. You could do that, yep. Yeah, so the only point I want to make is that there's a high rate up to maybe, and this is only one organism, this is where all the data are. We don't have a whole lot of data. But it bears on the issue of mutation rate evolution for a reason I'll, I'll sum up with. These, these increase linearly with time in the tissues, so they're just... There isn't like an error catastrophe in tissues that you'd expect an accelerating rate. They're increasing linearly. Think about if you're a worm then, what this might mean. And what I'm, I'm trying to tie this back to the beginning, I talk about what selects on the mutation rate. And I think in multicellular organisms, you might be able to make an argument that it's not only the explanation I provided at the beginning, that it's an indirect effect. It could be a direct effect. Imagine the worm. So the kind of thing you're talking about, you can do in the worm. We know the complete cell lineage of the worm. So for any cell, at the end of terminal differentiation, you know how many cell divisions you've gone through. But just imagine there's a certain amount of mutations arising in a worm. 
we multiply, uh, there's about a thousand cells in a worm, genome size. I'm running everything off to 10, uh, 10 to the eighth uh, bases in a cell. The somatic rate's gonna be about 10 to the minus seven. That means that an adult worm has about 10,000 somatic mutations in it, distributed over those thousand cells. For a human, it's substantially larger, 10 to the 14th cell divisions, 10 to the nine bases per cell, it's more than that, I'm just rounding off. 10 to the minus seven for a somatic mutation rate. So on average, we have, we're all walking around about 10 to the 16th mutations in our soma. So here's the issue, and it's just pure verbal theory, that uh, this is the theory I presented to you before about how, what, what the select, how selection operates on the mutation rate. It's its indirect effect due to mutations that remain linked with you for just two generations if you're sexual. But there's a direct, the, the possibility that selection operates directly on the mutation rate if you're multicellular, because if you're producing mutations in your soma, that influences your ability, to, and, and they hurt you before you pass on your, your family jewels to your kids, that's direct selection. And it's not easy to figure out what the net effect of all these somatic mutations distributed over the whole soma will be on the on, uh, overall fitness. But that's obviously an unsolved problem, and I think it's, it's uh, quite relevant to the whole issue of the evolution of multicellularity. We know that you use more or less the same DNA machinery, so that means you have to have the same uh, selection operating on the same things. And the main question is the load due to this somewhere in the neighborhood of that. And then finally, I'll end on this slide with respect to issues with respect to cancer. Uh, one more slide that sums this up. And here's this interesting issue with respect to cancer. And I, again, I don't know how to do the detailed theory here. But the common denominator is if you're multicellular, there's gonna be a certain number of key cell divisions that you're required to make a soma. And in those cells, there's gonna be a certain number of key uh, loci. So the product of this is what you can't touch for fitness. And then you can imagine at a certain mutation rate, you can ask the question, uh, what's the probability that at least one of these key cells will get hit with the mutation? And it's just a, a, a Poisson sort of thing. That's the probability of not being hit. And it's gonna ask them to, to one, right? As, as the number of cells gets large enough, there'll always be some key cell that will get hit. So that function has to roughly hold. Now imagine you have a anti-mutator, um, and so it moves the curve down to here. The selection coefficient is going to be related to the distance between this curve and that curve. Okay, I mean, I don't know exactly how all this works, but that's got to be roughly true. And so that distance is maximum when this value is about one. Which means if the key number of loci times the number of cells in your organism is about one, if you make an organism that's more multicellular than that, selection will become weaker, even though it's worse and worse for you you're more, more likely to be insured of a deleterious mutation, the selection coefficient uh, promoting mechanisms that would reduce the somatic mutation rate actually has to decline. And it's simply, again, this consequence of the saturation effect. You know, once you're at the point where you're guaranteed to get a, a deleterious mutation, uh, you just can't select any further. So it raises this interesting 
question whether, uh, you know, how this relates to issues like really substantial issues of the evolution of multicellular, like in a, a big mammal, like a whale, for example. Um, maybe once you've added enough cells to your soma, um, you just, you're just stuck with something like cancer. There's just no way, uh, even though it's not good for you, obviously, if selection's pushing you to be multicellular for purely ecological reasons that overweigh the issue of cancer, this is just some baggage that will come along. So I just, the pure speculation, but I think it's relevant to the, the whole issue of the evolution of, of multicellularity because generally we're always talking about the advantages of multicellularity, but there are at least some disadvantages. And sorry I went over. I didn't realize I had your last I think so, yeah. Let's take one question and move all the other questions to the period. Yes. So as far as cancers go, cancer goes, there's Pito's paradox. Yeah. Not much, um, <laughs> other than that there might be some, I mean, it's sort of a, a haphazard collection of observations. Um, but it's, the idea is that um, the, the liability of, say, a whale or an elephant to cancer is about the same as a mouse. It's not, that sort of sums it up, right? Yeah, yeah I, I don't have a, well, it's called Pito's Paradox, I guess, for a reason. <laughs> That because but I, I think what it does prompt is um, some studies of uh, the uh, molecular features of polymerases and DNA recurrent enzymes in organisms of, of different body plans. I think that's to me that that would help get at the answer. I mean, if it's if it's the observation is correct, then there must be something pretty amazing in the whale tissue uh, because of the number of cell divisions they've gone through that protects you. Let, let me uh, announce this two talks tomorrow and also our group dinner tomorrow night. So sign up on the wiki, please. And uh, let's thank Mike again for giving us something to talk about. Over